singing theology, right? Gordon Wenham says, as I like to remind you, careful what you sing. You're committing yourself to believing what's coming out your mouth and then doing something about it. So let's do that with the Bible, too. Open your Bibles. Let's listen to what it says and do something about it. We are in 1 John. We're crossing over into the second half of the book here in chapter 4. It's page 1023. If you need the Pew Bible in front of you, otherwise open your Bible towards the end. It's one of the short general epistles toward the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We're reading a fairly long chunk today, up to verse 21 is our sermon text. We're going to read it, we'll pray for God's help to understand and live it, and then we'll work our way through it. This is God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides, dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we now know, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are, are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us power so that your spirit may dwell in our hearts through faith and that you would help us to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, knowing this love that is beyond knowing, to be filled to the measure of the fullness of you. We pray that you would help us to love one another because we know the love of your son. We pray that you would help us to perfect your love so that the unseen God is seen in your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a story I've heard repeated about a guy named Carl Bart. Is Carl Bart a familiar, familiar person to you guys? I'm not sure if the story is true or if it's apocryphal, but I think it's authentic. 
Karl Barth is one of the most influential, one of the influential theologians of the 20th century. He's a Swiss Reformed guy. He's a contemporary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if that helps place him for you. Nazi Germany is part of when he was alive. Although he, unlike Bonhoeffer, who stayed in Germany, he was kicked out in 1935 because they wanted, as a professor, he had to sign an oath of loyalty to Hitler, and he refused to sign it, so they booted him out of the country. So he actually lived because he went to Switzerland. He's best known for his systematics, church dogmatics. And the story about Karl Karl Barth goes like this, right? A deep thinker, a theologian, one of the most influential ones of the 20th century. He was in America touring, speaking probably about his church dogmatics book. And someone asked him this after one of his lectures, how would you distill your theology down and explain it all in one sentence? You got to love questions like that when you're a theologian who's been writing, you know, bullet-stopping books. Could you just give it to me in one sentence? Typical American, right? So he he reflects a little while, the story goes, thinks about it for just a minute, spends that time filling his pipe and lighting it and puffs a little bit. And he says, here's, here's Karl, Barth, Karl Barth's uh, one-sentence summary. I would summarize my theology like this, he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, period. Drop the mic and walk away. And if he had to put his finger on one passage, one biblical text that teases out that one-sentence summary of his theology and shows its implications for life and discipleship and mission, I think he could do a lot worse than our sermon text this morning. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Jesus loves me, this I know, for 1 John 4 tells me so. Did you notice as I was reading it how many times the word love showed up? It was over and over and over. So I think, you know, we can safely say it occurs more than once or twice. In fact, I think we should look at that a little bit more. It showed up so many times, and I don't often start sermons with stats. You know, I'm a liberal arts major. I was a history major. Numbers are confusing to me. But we're going to start with some some hard science. Let's start with a few statistics about this to get a sense of this theme of love in 1 John 4 and its importance in the entirety of the New Testament. The Greek root that's being used here, you've probably heard before if you've been around the church for a while. It's agape, or it comes, we get agape, the noun, we get agapao, the verb, we got agape toy, beloved, right, which shows up in this book a lot, a lot from that, agape. It shows up 58 times in 1 John. That's a lot for a book this short. 28 of them are verbs, 30 of them are nouns. Here's the point. That is the highest concentration of the use of this word love in the entirety of the New Testament. No book uses it more. In fact, the closest, next closest passage is the Upper Room Discourse in John 13 through 16, where Jesus is giving them the same old new command. Now I'm telling you, love one another like I've loved you just after he washes their feet and serves them. That's the next place that uses love most, and it's half as much as it uses it in 1 John. No other book talks about love more than 1 John. It's part of the main message of the book. Remember, we're saying 1 John's titular or title phrase is, by this we know. That's the main point of the book. And the main way, by this we know that we are Christians, is whether or not we love. It's directly tied in. That's how much it comes up in this book. No book in the Bible speaks of it more, speaks of love more than 1 John. So I want to zoom in and look at where that word occurs in 1 John a little bit more. I think this is interesting. 
in a book that's about love, it doesn't even mention it in the first chapter at all. No uses of it in chapter 1. Just seven uses of it in chapter 2. But then 13, twice as many, 13 uses of it in chapter 3. And then 33, almost three times, 33 uses of it in chapter 4. And then it goes back down to five uses in chapter 5. So it looks like a wave. We just sang a song about an ocean, didn't we? Of Christ's love. It looks like a wave that's flat, right? You're looking out from the beach and then you see it's starting to build a little bit. Oh, there's something there. And then you see it's, oh, it's actually a wave. And then it becomes this, okay! And it's this huge thing and it crashes down on your head in chapter four. And then it slowly kind of goes up the beach and washes back out into the sea in chapter five. That's how love works in this book, the theme. It's building and building and building until in our text, it crests and crashes down on us, its readers. So not only is the book of 1 John, the book that talks the most about love in the entire New Testament, this passage uses this word more than any other passage or chapter in the New Testament. It even beats 1 Corinthians 13, right, which everybody knows is the love chapter. Well, this chapter uses it way more than 1 Corinthians 13, which is a distant second to 1 John 4. So we're learning by following the word, God's love for us. We're learning God's, our love for one another. It's a foundational way in 1 John of how by this we know that we're genuine Christians. We have assurance of salvation. Not by what we do, but by looking at what we do, we can see that we're saved. Not that what we do saves us. And we can assess the teaching that comes at us, right? That's one of the main points of the book, too. Listen, who do we listen to? Who do we allow to have input and say in our lives? As we, as we watch the wave build and crash on us in chapter 4, First John is saying, love is the main criteria for the reality of Christian profession. Whether you actually mean what you say will be shown in how you love. That's the point of the book, I think. That's the point of this chapter, certainly. Right? Verse 16 gives us a good summary of what's going on. If you look at verse 16 again, God is love. And the one remaining in love remains in God, and God remains or dwells or abides in him. And then chapter 5, which we'll start next week, it provides kind of the denouement and the conclusion of this love theme. And this we know we love the children of God when we love him and keep his commands. So that's the stats I wanted to start with to help you see how important this theme is in this book and how important this book and this chapter is in the entirety of the New Testament. So I'm going to give you my, here's my one-sentence summary of what I think is going on since we're doing one-sentence summaries today. Here's mine. The love of God for his people that provides Christ as the atoning sacrifice to save them That's the first half. The love of God for his people that provides the atoning sacrifice of Christ to save them becomes the love of God's people for each other in our life together. That's the second half. It becomes the love of God's people for each other in our life together. This is what, this is the glue for fellowship. This is the glue for common life and a common purpose for a common future. Jesus has saved us from our sins And now I'm going to show you what that looks like by living out that kind of self-sacrificing, joyful love for you. I will show you Jesus' love, not just by saying it to you, but by doing it, 
brother's love, not just with word and tongue, right? What did it say earlier? But with actions and in truth. So Karl Barth's Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, Because the Bible Tells Me So, is a pretty good summary of the Bible's message, and it's certainly a good summary of our text this morning. This text this morning is going to come to us in four parts. You might see it in your bulletin outline. You'll notice that the beginning and the end part are very similar. I've named them so you can see the parallels. Right? The beginning part says, atoning sacrifice, thus we love. And in the end part, the last part, abounding confidence, thus we are loved. So you see how it's bracketing in the two love themes. We love because we are loved. And then in the middle, we see the abiding Savior, by this they know. And then we see by this we know. And the reason I name those is because we need to understand that this is both a call to the unbeliever, this text, woman who doesn't know Jesus yet, saying you should be able to look at the way they treat each other and see that the cross has power and that the gospel is true. And it's a call to Christians, people who already confess Jesus, saying you better be able to see Jesus in each other and live like he has lived for you, and love and walk as he has walked for you. So it's a call to both. By this they know, by this we know. That's how this passage goes together, and the sermon text, the sermon outline, follows the text outline, so that's what we're going to do. Four parts. So let's start with the first one. Verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, and in this the love of God was made manifest among us. Now you hear almost John 3.16, right? That God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're going to zoom in on that almost to last $5 word in the last verse propitiation, mainly because I just like saying it because it rolls off the tongue nicely. Propitiation, right? It's a fun word, but it's a hard word to understand in modern English. It comes up twice in the book. It it occurred in chapter 2, verse 2, and now it shows up here, and it's a loaded term. I would define it as meaning this, substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Cleared everything up, didn't it? Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So I just used three $10 words to define one $5 word, and now it all costs, what is that, like 25, 30 bucks we up to now? This isn't helping us. So I, what I want to do is give you a picture of what propitiation looks like. It is a substitute, it is atoning, and it is a sacrifice. And Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 gives us a good picture of what that looks like. So Hebrews 9 is doing what all of Hebrews does, and it looks two directions, right? Hebrews can focus in two directions at the same time. It's like the last chapter of Leviticus, Hebrews is. So it's looking back at Leviticus and the sacrificial system there, and it's also looking straight at Jesus Christ, and then it's connecting the two for you as the reader, saying, here's the last chapter of Leviticus. Here's what Leviticus is talking about and bringing you toward. His name is Jesus Christ. And so let's look at each of the two visions of Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 starts off by this idea, people sin. People sin all the time. That's why we have confession in our service every week. People sin in all kinds of ways. You sin, I sin, and what I say, and what I do, and what I think, and what I don't do, and what I don't say, and what I don't think. All the time. 
But the universe was created by a God who is holy and pure and just, and sin cannot be in his presence. And the wages of sin in his universe is death, eternal death, and eternal punishment forever. The wages of sin, any sin, one sin, is eternal death. And that means to pay that death penalty, something has to happen. Death has to happen. The spilling of blood, for in blood there is life. That's one of the main themes of Leviticus. The spilling of blood has to happen to pay for sin. So Hebrews 9 is showing us the love of God and how that happens. There are two choices. In Leviticus, there are two choices. You could pay the sin penalty yourself and die. We'll take you outside of the camp and we'll stone you because you deserve death. Right? That's one choice. Or you can bring an animal and spill the animal's blood in sacrifice, and God in his graciousness will count the blood of the animal as covering as forgiveness for your sin. That's, the, the, in a really overview summary, the, the Levitical sacrificial system. That was God's gracious provision for sin then. The animal could become a substitute and atone, that's what the word atone means, pay for your sin by its sacrifice of its blood. Right? But that just worked once. And then you sin again, right, in the next 30 seconds. And then you have to do that again. And then you sin, and then you, and then you, and then you, and the sacrificial system of Leviticus never ends. And there's just blood everywhere. Right, read it. Read it through the lens of what the priest would be doing. He's covered in blood. He spends all day slitting the necks of one animal after another and then sprinkling that blood everywhere. The place is a bloody mess at the end of the day because that is the stench and filth of our sin before God, atoned for by the fire going up from the altar. That's one option. That's Leviticus. But Hebrews says now there's something else that fulfills and replaces that. It's the Son. God has sent his only Son into the world, and Jesus steps in and takes the place of the entire sacrificial system. And he becomes the blood sacrifice that fulfills all that that was pointing to. That's substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ comes and becomes our substitute. He spills his blood at the cross. He pays for our sin. But there's a huge difference between that sacrificial system and Christ's cross. Right? This has to go on forever, over and over and over, because it never really does the job of fixing the inside problem. Jesus' blood is a once-for-all sacrifice, Hebrews 9 says. It is so powerful and so potent. It pays for all of our sin for all time once. Not because we loved God, not because we've earned it, not because we merit it, not because we can do anything, but entirely because God loved us first. So Hebrews 9.12, Jesus goes once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but secures our forgiveness by his blood alone. You are redeemed. And if you don't yet know God's love, that's propitiation, right? It shows the love of God more than anything else, a substitute that pays as a sacrifice for sin and saves you. And Jesus' blood does that once for all time for any who will believe in him. 
And if you don't know that yet this morning, you can. It is available to you if you will come in faith and believe in his son, Jesus. If you'd like to know how to do that, or just learn more about who is this Jesus, and how does this work, and how can he trade himself for me, you can ask anybody who usually goes to church here, and they would love to open the Bible with you and talk to you about how to learn who Jesus is and to believe in him and be saved. But you should also understand, before you ask that question of somebody who goes to church here, grace will not leave you alone. God loves you too much for that. Grace will ask that you change. God wants you to look like his son because that's what's best for you and that's what glorifies him. So as you come to his son and have life in his name, then you get to spend the rest of your life here and the rest of eternity forever growing and maturing and learning him until you're finally with him in his presence. By this they know then is what comes next. Right? If you don't yet know Jesus, you should be able to find him here by the way we treat each other. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God's loved us this way, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. Like, look at the oughtness. You see that ought? Look at the oughtness of God's love. We also ought to love one another. So if you're here this morning and you already are in Christ... This is speaking to you. If you are here this morning and do not yet know Christ, this is speaking to you too. And what it's saying to you is if you don't know Christ yet, you should be able to see the potency and the power of the blood of Christ in the people here in the way we treat each other. So stick around and watch. Stick around and watch. Spend some time with us and see if you don't see the gospel on display in ordinary everyday life here. You ought to be able to. If the gospel's true, look around. Right? If we love one another, you can see that God has made his home here. First John is the testimony. First John is the testimony given to us of what the apostles heard and saw and looked at and touched as they learned and they loved and they lived Jesus. And anyone who doesn't know Jesus ought to be able to do the same thing with us now to hear it from us, to see it in us, to experience it with us. Seeing God's love played out in ordinary, everyday life here in the way we treat each other. For those of us who are already disciples and following Jesus, who know him and love him and are living for him, we need to experience the gospel every day. You're never behind your need for the cross of Christ as a Christian. The best way we can know it is the way that we treat each other. This is a call to unbeliever and believer alike. This is where we have our good work yet to do, to show off the love of God to each other and to everyone else by loving one another, not with word and tongue, but with action and in truth. So are you loving each other, brothers and sisters? It's one of the questions this text wants you to ask. When people look at us, when we look at each other, do we see the love of God in Christ among us? If you need a few more specific questions to help you kind of tease out what does that look like and what should I be doing, because that's kind of a general thing, our Making Disciples study has a number of them. I'm going to pull three out of that study that everybody in growth groups is doing together right now. Here are three questions to kind of assess yourself in the how are we doing and am I loving 
the way this text is calling me to love one another. What do you need to change in the way that you think about other people to make disciples? What do you need to change in the way you think about other people to make disciples, to love one another? Second question, what do you need to change in the way you speak to other people to make disciples? What do you need to change in the way you speak to other people to make disciples, to love one another? And third, what do you need to change in the way you spend your time to make disciples, to love one another? What do you need to change in the way you spend your time to change, to make disciples, to love one another? Think, speak, time. Those are the areas that are starting points for you. Right, in applying this text and loving one another, there are things we need to change in the way we think, the way we speak, and in the way we spend our time so that by this they know. Now look at by this we know, verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Man, I want that. Right theology which we sometimes call orthodoxy, and right living, which we could call orthopraxy, right? Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right theology and right living, they intertwine in Jesus Christ. You have to have both of them. When we believe and know God's love for us in Christ, it cannot help but make us demand of ourselves and desire in ourselves to love each other the same way we've been loved in Christ. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy go together. And this is evidence that the Spirit of God resides in us, and he's working in us, and he's working through us. By this we know that we are Christians. When we confess Jesus is the Son of God, and then when we do something about it, and love one another as he has loved us. But man, is that hard. Man, is that hard. Right? Isn't it? I find this to be the hardest single thing I'm asked to do, is to love other people like God has loved me. Because I am not very good at that. Here, people of God, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. So love the Lord of God with all of your soul, all of your life. Right? And then the Shema has an adverb. It's the last word. All of your ma'odacha, which I would translate as everythingness. Every molecule of, molecule of your being, nothing left out. <laughs> that is not easy. If that's how God loves me and I'm to love him. A life of being and making disciples. So when we're called to do this, right, this isn't a, remember deeper? We're going to talk about deeper, the book we studied earlier a little bit. This kind of life isn't just all God, right? He calls me, he does the work, he saves me. And now it's up to me to do everything else until I die in Christ and go to be with him. It's not all God and then all me. That's not how this works. That's not 
biblical. It's also not the other way around. It's not all God all the time. God saves me, and then God just kind of carries me along, and I just, I just lay back in the easy chair and do nothing, right? Let go and let God. That is not a life of discipleship. That's not how this works. It is also not this way. It is not God gives 50%, right? And then I slide in my matching donation of 50%, and then that gets us sort of all the way, right? It's not half God and half me. How does the life of sanctification, of Christian discipleship, of love one another work? What, is, what does Ortland say? What did he teach us in Deeper? It is all God. You can't do any of this without the Spirit giving you the will and the strength to work out your salvation. And it requires all of you. It's all the chips, all into the middle of the table, if you like poker. This is an all-in, right? You put everything out there. And you know that everything you have is not enough, and it takes everything of God's power and his Spirit to do it. And it's all you and all God all the time in the Spirit. Verse 13, he's given us his Spirit. That's how this works. Remember verses 1 through 6 last week, right? The Spirit comes back into this again. Test the Spirit's. Most of them are not going to be pointing you to Jesus and helping you work out your salvation. Most of them want to trick, deceive, derail, and destroy you. Only the Holy Spirit is the one who confesses Jesus has come in the flesh. Only the Holy Spirit confesses Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Only the Holy Spirit makes Jesus beautiful and makes Jesus wonderful and puts the spotlight on him and his love and empowers you to do the same with others. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Christ, that's the person who has the Spirit, who's confessing that. See how that goes with last week's text? You have to be careful who you listen to, because lots of people are going to want to trip you up in this, and this is not easy to do. In ordinary, everyday life, how do we do this? How do we abide in God? How does he abide in us? All God, all me, all the time. I think there are two things necessary to do this. And they both start with A to help us remember them. You need to ask and you need to act. We need to ask and we need to act. I'm going to tease those out. This is a longer time of application than we usually do because I think we need to soak in how love one another works. When you need help, when you need the love of God exercised for you in something huge, or in something small, you need to ask. Minnesotans who are naturally reserved, you have to ask. And usually reasons that we don't ask boil down to two things, past experience and present pride. Right? Past experience can keep me from asking. I've asked for help before. Maybe even I've asked for help from these same people. And all I get is silence. All I get is distance. I asked and nobody heard me. And nobody helped me. And if that's been true here or someplace else, I'm really sorry. Don't judge the love of God by the, by the failures of his people. See the love of God and the successes of them. And I'm sorry if that's been your past experience. I've asked and no one's helped, right? I understand that. I've had that experience a number of times too. Right? Often the pastor and his family are invisible and we forget that we're humans too. I'm right there with you. But we shape our lives by truth. We shape our lives by God's love for us in Christ. That's what's true. So that does not give us, we have no excuse. Past experience is not an excuse to not ask for help. You don't get to pull that card out. It doesn't cut it. 
When we need help, we ask for something big or something small. And present pride, present pride does not cut it either. And I have this problem. Like this one, I'm, I'm actually good at this one. Present pride. I don't like asking for help. I would much rather just do it myself. I don't want somebody to help me with something I need. I don't like depending on anybody else for it. Brothers and sisters, that is not biblical. And I'm working to get better at that. And I hope you're working with me. We are, do not get to short-circuit God's design for his people. Love one another living more clearly shows the power of the gospel than anything else. So I don't get to short-circuit God's showing people what the gospel looks like by not asking, and neither do you. This requires us, when we need help, we have to ask. And if it helps you, if you're one like me who has this present pride problem, i just rather do it myself, if it helps you think of it this way, don't keep the rest of us from getting to exercise the joy of our gospel freedom in Christ and helping you. Because we love doing that. So if you can't ask for help for yourself, at least do it for the people around you and giving them a chance to live out their faith. You have to ask. That's the first A. You also have to act. If we're going to have love one another living around here, you have to act. You need those three questions. Looking at yourself in the mirror. What do you need to change in the way you think to love one another, to make disciples? What do you need to change in the way you speak to love one another and make disciples? What do you need to change in the way you use your time or your talents or your treasure to be able to love one another and make disciples? Right. This is how we come to know God's love for us in Christ, this text says. One of the best ways you can know God's love for you is by doing it for somebody else. So act. Don't wait to be asked. Look around. Pay attention and act when you see someone who needs help. Back in chapter 3 of 1 John, you remember the dirty diaper bag if you were here? Right, I'm hauling around. I've got, a dirt, I've got a diaper bag. It's full of dirty diapers from crap from my past. Excuse me if you don't like the pastor saying crap. Too bad. From crap from my past that I'm hauling around that's bitterness and unforgiveness and sin and gunk that I just like to take out and show, hey, look at, look at how I was treated before. This, this one was really right. Let me tell you. No, you need to dump out that dirty diaper bag and get rid of that and make it a first responder bag instead and fill it with full of things of time, talent, and treasure that you have ready to help somebody to love them who needs help. You take that dirty diaper bag, you make it into a first responder bag, and then you act. You don't wait to be asked. When you see someone, remember what we asked, when you see someone who needs help, whose job is it here to do that? That's really close. Somebody said mine, absolutely, but somebody else over here said the plural. Ours. It is ours. Each of us, but all of us. And that's the point of this text. All of these verbs, all of these pronouns are plural. They're speaking to the church. Whose job is it when someone here needs help? It's our job. You get the first responder bag, you get on the truck, and you be the first one out of the station to go help. And please have the sense, to keep the analogy going, to dial 911 when you need help. Because we don't always know what's going on inside of you and we can't see there. Ask, dial 911, and act. Get on the truck, go out of the station. For your brother or sister in Christ, whether it's something small, right? It doesn't have to be a crisis. 
I have a job review this week and my performance review, and I'm anxious about it. Would you pray that God would be glorified through this and that I would have peace, right? Small things. Or it can be a huge thing. I can't pay my rent. I'm about to lose my house. Help! And then you're giving us the chance to get on the truck and come out of the station and do the gospel. Let us do the gospel together. By this we know. Now look at the last part of the passage, verses 17 through 21. By this, love is perfected with us, so we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not, for he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I just want to tease out one or two things from that. And first of all, it is this. Do you know why in Christ's love you don't need to have fear? This text says, because fear has to do with punishment. Why don't we need to have fear of punishment in Christ? What does propitiation mean? All of your sin, for all time, paid for by the one-time sacrifice of Christ on the cross, proven in his resurrection, pleaded on your account every time you sin because he's at the right hand of God as your advocate interceding for you. No fear. Jesus has already faced everything that you would have, way worse than rejection or someone belittling you or rejecting you or distancing you or treating you strangely because you're speaking and living the gospel for them. Jesus was actually mocked and then spitten and then beaten and then killed, crucified, loving us to the uttermost, becoming the once-for-all-time sacrifice for our sin. He's atoned for us. There's nothing to be afraid of when you're obeying the command to love one another. You've been forgiven for your sin. You have eternal life. You have an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. What on earth are we scared of? You have nothing to lose that matters in living this way. What loss can you actually suffer? None. Your sins are forgiven. Your inheritance is assured. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit as down payment on it. You are completely free in Christ to love one another and give yourselves to one another in gospel ministry so that those on the outside can see the gospel's true and those on the inside can see the gospel's true. Those who are part of the church and those who are not. Yet, this is God's command in Christ. Whoever loves God must love his brother. This is the other thing I wanted to point out, the verb tense. Did you catch that? Must also love. Do you hear any conditionality in that statement, right? This is a book full of if-then statements. This is not one of them. Must also love. And if you won't, this text says, then you're a liar. So let's come back to the gospel again and get that straight first. Then we can do this. This is God's privilege for you as his kid. 
must love one another. This is his mission for you as his child. Must love one another. God loved me first, and that's the only reason I can now love you. And sometimes that love is going to look like asking and then receiving help. And sometimes that love is going to look like acting and giving help. And all of that results in what the very beginning of the book says. Remember, we memorized this a couple weeks ago. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so you may have fellowship with us. And then our fellowship together gets to be with God and his son. So that's your commission from this text, Grace Covenant. Ask and act to love one another and show what the love of God looks like. Let's pray. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he's given us his spirit and he's given us his son. Help us to confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that you dwell here among us by the way we love one another. That those who don't yet know your son may see that the gospel is true in the way we live. And that each of us may remember that the gospel is true because of the way we live. Help us to ask, because that's really hard. Help us to ask, because it's very costly. Help us to glorify you and get to enjoy you forever in this kind of living. In Christ's name, amen.